I'm going to say the word, silos, right? Those silos have started to come down. If you blow with our business partners, you're not going to make it here. That is just as an important set of customers and clients. We do have, I think, a competitive advantage in that we have centralized financial planners and how you deliver the plan and how you execute. I think that's really where you can differentiate yourself. A program should aim that every advisor at some point in their career would become a second story advisor. It's not an advisor saying, I'm going to offer you this complimentary. You know, it's in the back of a client's mind is you're going to ask me to buy something at the end of this. We've recently brought on an internal insurance specialist, focus one-on-one with each of our advisors. The internal specialist is going to handle everything to make it an easier and, and simpler process. In our Connecticut footprint, we were at about a 15% penetration of, of households. Hello, and welcome to BISA Industry Trend Watch podcast. Good to have you with us today. Industry Trend Watch is a monthly series of with industry leaders discussing trends in the financial institutions channel. Productivity trending is provided by our bankchannelresearch.com portal, an interactive tool that reports on channel performance based on data collected monthly from over 50 financial institutions. This month, we are joined by Jane Ellen Porter of Peoples United and Vance Richard of First Horizon. In addition to industry trends, this episode dives into strategic issues such as centralized financial planning, employing insurance specialists, the importance of cross-departmental relationships, and nurturing book-based advisors. But first, we'd like to thank Ameriprise for making these podcasts possible. And as a show of appreciation, let's please listen to this brief message. We will then turn it over to Jana Capaletti, the creator of bankchannelresearch.com, who will kick us off with a trending overview. This is Chris Melton, National Director of the Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group. Ameriprise Financial Institution Group is a proud sponsor of the BISA Monthly Industry Trending Podcast Series. With more than 25 years of experience and knowledge in serving the investment program needs of local banks and credit unions, Ameriprise Financial Institution Group brings a depth of understanding as well as investment capabilities to help clients and members feel more confident, connected, and in control of their financial life. We look forward to learning more about your financial institution and sharing how a successful investment program can be a competitive advantage. Call us at 800-679-1237 or visit us at ameriprise.com slash AFIG. Securities offered by Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Not federally insured, no financial institution guarantee, may lose value. Thank you. Hi, this is Janet Capaletti, the Managing Director of Research for Stathis Partners and the creator of bankchannelresearch.com, here with highlights from February 2021. Deposit revenue penetration and the average FC productivity both dropped 12%, mostly on account of recurring revenues falling 25% after January, which is a month in which quarterly fees are collected. Sales of alternative products such as MLCDs and REITs doubled, and a surge in fixed annuity revenue drew transactional productivity up more than 20% for the month. On an annual basis, FC revenue grew 12% over February 2020. In contrast, deposit revenue penetration dropped 3%, While actual revenue dollars have increased, the flood of retail deposits last year has inflated our denominator, on average, for our institutions, about 20%. Consequently, household revenue penetration is a much better indicator, and that was actually a 7% rise from last February. I'd like to thank LPL and Infinex for providing much of the important data needed for this analysis. And now I turn it over to Scott and Bob. Hello, and glad you can join us for this episode of BISA Industry Trend Watch. I am Scott Stathis, and I will be your host along with Bob Mattel. This podcast is jointly produced by BISA and Stathis Mattel and made possible by our friends at Ameriprise, who we sincerely appreciate. So we are joined today by two industry leaders who will each introduce themselves momentarily. But first, I'd like to let our co-host, Bob Mattel, introduce himself. Bob? Well, hello, everybody, again, and I am the co-host and co-producer of this podcast, and we are ready to roll. 
All right. So let's let our industry leaders introduce themselves. Jane Ellen, would you like to go first? Sure. Hi, everybody. This is Jane Ellen Porter. I'm with People's United Advisors, part of People's United Bank in the Northeast of the States. Our program is made up of about 26 financial advisors, 75 what we call LIAs, also known as LBEs, who has 663s and life insurance licenses, and an additional 125 or so who are life only. Our program has last year ran about $16 million in total revenue, and our assets under management for the whole program are about $4 billion. All right. Thank you, Jane Ellen. Vance. Yeah, Vance Richard. And, and I want to thank you, Scott and Bob, for the opportunity to participate in the panel and also BISA. And, and of course, my esteemed panelist, Jane Ellen, uh, looking forward to it. I now represent First Horizon Advisors, a, a Southeast uh, regional powerhouse. I'm a managing director covering Louisiana, Texas, and Arkansas. And footprint-wide, we have 125 advisors. We have a robust platform program, roughly 200 LBEs with two sales directors. We have AUM of $8 billion and annual revenues of $80 million. All right. Thanks, Vance. All right. So let's dive into the discussion. And as usual, we're going to start with discussing productivity trending for the most recent month, which data has been collected for. But then we're going to dive into a more forward-looking discussion that uh, that focuses on strategy for the year ahead and beyond. So, Bob, why don't you kick us off with the first question? Absolutely, Scott. And I've got six pages of charts and graphs and numbers in front of me that uh, can get us into that conversation right away. So it looks like the February data that we've collected so far on advisor productivity and household revenue penetration looks like February was a pretty good month for our channel, up around 10% year over year. Let's start off with you, Jane Ellen. How does that compare with your program's performance and what does the outlook for the first quarter look like for you this year? Yeah, thanks, Bob. So for our year-to-date numbers, we are actually trending a little ahead of that and there's a couple of reasons behind that and my hope is that we'll continue for the rest of the quarter and throughout the year. We recently were put back on our branch incentive program, which, as we all know, has a very strong impact on overall results. And, you know, I know we'll talk a little bit more later about the impact of last year on business. But, you know, with our advisors really digging their heels into working with their clients, you know, their book of business and their clients in 2020, to have this added renewed focus from retail, you know, the retail branches is is really pushing our numbers our overall allocation of our dollars that are going in, you know, continuing strong on, you know, annuities, fee-based. We've got some insurance kicking in again. So as I look into this quarter and again, as I look into the rest of the year, you know, I just look at that positive momentum continuing and and us really having a a really strong year. So, you know, again, part of the, the art, I think, of the sales management group is to make sure that we're continuing to do all the great things we did last year with our existing books of business you know, while continuing to focus on the retail branches in this environment as much as we can and using our technology to get in front of them for training and development to get us um, as part of their focus and in their conversations with their clients. So balancing both of those is is really how we're going to continue to have this growth year over year. And, and you know, my background in insurance always jumps to the <laughs> forefront. And I heard you say insurance kicking in. So just give me a little more about that if you can. Yeah. So we've recently brought on an internal insurance specialist who, you know, just like everybody else, we've been trying to, uh, you know, really penetrate on the insurance side for many, many years with our financial advisors. We have had a pretty strong platform program, you know, with the retail banking network. So we brought in a, a insurance specialist and having the insurance specialist focus one-on-one with each of our advisors to find out why they aren't doing insurance if they're not, you know, what do they need to become comfortable and bringing her in, in in order to be part of those meetings with their clients to uncover those clients' needs. So even at so early in the year, we're really starting to see some really positive conversations, uh, business coming from advisors who haven't been focused on insurance for a while and really looking at continuing to grow that business. That's great because I know you guys were always over the average, which has always been around 3%. Mm-hmm. You guys have always right. been multiples of that. So uh, that, that's a great trend to continue. 
Have yep. you, uh, Jane Ellen, have you had an insurance specialist in the past or is this a, um, a, a brand new effort? So we had an insurance specialist years and years ago, but we have not had one for, I would say, probably 10 years at this point. So this is a new effort. She, our insurance specialist is actually part, was part of our, our high net worth group and is now working with our financial advisors as well. So, you know, she's been part of the company for a long time, proven to be successful, right? Proven to enhance those overall relationships that the high net worth side had and, you know, which is super helpful in introducing her to our advisors so that they trust her, they know she's got a strong background and, and that they can help their clients. Yeah, you know that that position can be a very leverageable position. But mm-hmm. the um, as a point of reference, we've we did some research in the past on insurance specialist positions, and the ROI on average takes about three years. But if you dedicate three years of effort to that position, the ROI is significant after three years. So it's well right. worth it. Most institutions give up too soon on it. So good for you for reinstating that and we wish you luck. But if you get any questions from the institution, let them know that it's a three-year ROI, but it's worth it. So stick with it. Right. Right. <laughs> let me let me ask yeah, Bob, do so I, I don't want to I don't want to take the this questioning away from you, but I, there's one other thing that Jane Allen said that I want to ask her about and it's about being back on the branch scorecard. So as you know, Bob, this is the second time we've heard this in two days that the, the an investment program was taken off the scorecard and then put back on. So just curious, Jane Allen, if you have any insights as to why that might be happening in our channel, that being investment programs taken off the scorecard during the pandemic, but now being put on. Any thoughts or insights? Sure. So we actually came off the branch scorecard prior to the pandemic. Um, that was a move that was made at the beginning of 2019. And the you know reasons being that banks needed to focus on bringing deposits in right we all work for banks right they're bank programs and you know the banks were were kind of changing the direction i think overall not just our bank but overall in in where they needed to see value on top of it and i know that at least this was in our program you had folks in the branches who were focusing on so many different things right 20 years ago, if you worked in the branches, you opened up accounts, you know, maybe cross-sold a couple of products, right? But what is expected of the folks in the branches now is far beyond what it was, which in, in my view makes it more difficult for them to focus on investments or any of the other product, right? So that was part of the reason as well is to kind of pull the focus back from the retail banking network to, to, to the core bank products and then build upon there. So we went back as a meaningful part of the branch incentive plan in January. We're seeing our referrals up about 150% since the beginning of the year. Our overall investment, you know, invested dollars from the branches are up 30% year over year. So again, we're back on. We know there's a lot of turnover in the branches. So being off for two years, right, we're kind of starting all over. But we have some great champions in the branches and uh, who really are, are partnering with us to to get back on pretty quickly. So some more to come. Like I said, you know, my full expectation is those numbers will continue to rise. But, you know, I think the pullback, like I said, was, you know, to have the bank focus on the deposit and, and, and lending piece of it. And now realizing that, you know, deepening those relationships is as important as it always has been. And, you know, the investment and insurance programs bring those deeper relationships to the bank. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting, you know, from from an advisor perspective, you have branch branch traffic that's being reduced anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're off the scorecard and it, it almost forces the advisor to rely less on the branches and do more work with existing clients in their book, perhaps, which isn't a bad thing to a degree. It's a blessing that's in right. disguise. So they got a little bit of that. And now they're back on the scorecard. So now they maybe have the best of both worlds. I'm being a real optimist when I say this, right? But <laughs> Well, that's the art that I was talking about before from a sales management standpoint, right, is is having your advisors continuing to do the great work they did last year. I mean, right, we've all wanted our advisors to be focusing on their books of business more, right, right. when we were on the branch program. So they've reaped the benefits of those relationships and deepening them, especially during the, the pandemic, right, that they were there for their clients and able to be. And now it's bringing more clients on. So, you know, that's part of our job as sales management is making sure that they're focusing on both parts of that business in order to continue to grow and 
and not get complacent going back to relying only on referrals. Yeah. Interesting stuff. All right. Back to you, Bob. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no worries. That's good. Good conversations. So Vance, again, February looks like it was a pretty good month for our channel, up around 10% year over year. How does that compare with what's going on uh, in your program? Yeah. So like Jane Ellen, we were ahead of the, the pack, I guess. Uh, our combined wealth management revenue, excluding trust services, was up 14% over February 2020. And year to date for the first two months of 2021, we're, we're actually up 16% uh, over 2020. So we're off to a great start. And I expect those numbers to get better as the year goes on. We did convert legacy Iberia Financial Services to First Horizon Advisors on January 21st. So if you look at uh, January and February, I think legacy IFS showed up more on the expense side uh, of the ledger. Beginning March, uh, we're, we're going to show up more on the revenue side, and I expect that ratio to get better as the year goes on. So off to a good start. And I, you know, Our first party right now is to get through conversion, which we're 80% of the way through, 75% of the way through. And I expect more tailwinds than headwinds as the year goes on. Okay, so in the middle of an integration, we're prob- you're probably at the, the busiest in your career. You're in a pandemic. You're up 14% and 16%. You got to give us more. Tell us how that happened. Yeah, sure. Well, I'll, I'll credit Rums uh, for running a great program and the, the legacy team at First Horizon Advisor. They really do have a terrific team. Uh, Rums, as you know, is the president of our wealth department or wealth unit. Uh, Mims is our, our chief operating officer. Mims Clayton, he's been around a long time. Karen Cruz uh, is the chief compliance officer who's been around a long time. We have a lot of people on the legacy First Horizon team who have been working together for 20 plus years and, and just do a great job. Know the industry, know our clients, know our bankers, and, and just do a, a great job of running the program. Fee business has been very good. That makes up about 65% of our total revenue if you include trails. And the markets uh, have performed well. So that, that, of course, has been a nice lift as well. Awesome. Um, are you on or off the scorecard? <laughs> Got to follow we, with that. Yeah, we, we actually have the, uh, the opposite of what you were discussing earlier. So we're, we're on the scorecard. Again, our, our biggest priority right now is to get through conversion. And as part of that conversion, we, we had data feed set up from our broker dealer to the bank so that our branches and bankers got credit for the revenue on their scorecard. And we've had some manual workarounds because the bank has not converted yet. The bank converts in uh, September, maybe October of this year, but we are still crediting revenue to the scorecards. And really over the past year, the bank has been challenged to generate interest income. The, the spreads and the, the, the margins have really compressed. So there, there's been a real big support or promotion from, from Brian Jordan to, to Michael Brown, who's the regional banking, the president of regional banking, to, to really focus on wealth and fee income. So we've, we've really enjoyed more support than we have in the past and remain on the scorecard. And once we make the transition on the bank side in September, October, my understanding is the wealth component of the scorecard may be a bit, a bit healthier, a bit stronger. Awesome. I have to also ask one other question, too, because as, as we were talking earlier, insurance has always been a struggle in a lot of programs. People's has done a lot. And I know the Heritage and First Horizon has done much the same. How's insurance going? Yeah. So at Legacy Iberia Financial, we, uh, we, we really struggle with that. First Horizon, I think, has done a better job and have been ahead of the 3% kind of plumb line you, you mentioned earlier. Uh, we are actually working on, and, and I participated in a launch of the financial planning program for the Legacy Iberia footprint in Louisiana, Texas, and Arkansas, my region. Uh, we had meetings all of last week from New Orleans to Lake Charles, Louisiana. If you're familiar with Louisiana, that's the I-10 corridor. So <laughs> we made a uh, east to west swing and met with, uh, I want to say, 40, 40 plus bankers talking about the financial planning program. And one of the needs that will come out of a holistic financial plan is going to be life insurance. We're really hoping that's going to drive uh, future sales. But like like Jane Ellen in her bank, we have an internal specialist. We're launching an internal specialist or reorganizing to include an internal specialist. The internal specialist will, will operate a little bit differently. They're not going to provide point of sale support. That's going to come from our, our partner, Highland Insurance, and also some of our, our direct carriers. But the internal specialist is going to do everything else, and they're going to do everything 
that an advisor doesn't like to do. So everything from taking the app to submitting the app, following up on the app, following it all the way through the process until the policy is issued, and then even tracking commissions. The internal specialist is going to handle everything and, and work with the advisor to make it an easier and, and simpler process for the advisor. So we're really hoping that'll help along with the uh, leading with holistic financial planning, will help really help drive sales going forward. That's great. And to all our listeners out there, listen in. Insurance specialists, you're hearing from two best practice insurance programs in the industry. So um, take note. With that, let's pass it on to Scott for the next question. All right. Thanks, Bob. So so I have a question that we, we kind of referred to a little while ago, Jane Ellen, in, in, in my, my questions with you, and it, and it has to do with the branch-based advisor. So, and I'm going to ask you to kind of look into the future with this one. What's interesting to us as we follow the trending in the industry is that the, uh, the reasoning for putting advisors in branches is not as reasonable anymore. And what I mean by that is we used to put advisors in branches to get in the way of branch traffic, but we're chasing traffic out of branches, right? So branch traffic is being reduced. The number of branches in the industry is being reduced. You know, foot traffic in branches is becoming data traffic. So the question is, what's the future of the branch-based advisor? You know, what's the future of how do you assess your footprint and determine how many advisors you need? Geography matters less now. The pandemic has proven that, right? We can do stuff virtually. So what are your thoughts on the future of the, of the branch-based advisor specifically? And Vance, maybe you want to lead off with, with uh, answering this one? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, so when I got started back in the business, it was, it was in the late 80s, early 90s. And, and back then, it was a, a branch-based advisor really took all, all comers, right? And I think now uh, you can't do that. You can no longer take all comers. Advisors are going to need to focus on clients who may benefit more, and they'll need to spend more time with each client. So they, they need to take a holistic approach with clients, lead with financial planning, and that all takes a lot of time. We do have, I think, a competitive advantage in that we have centralized financial planners so I think that's going to help our, our field and our advisors uh, tremendously because the, the biggest lift when it comes to delivering a true, robust, holistic plan is you have to, to gather data and, and spend a lot of time building the plan on average, maybe five to seven hours. Our advisors typically don't have time to build a plan or spend five to seven hours to build one plan. So having that centralized staff, uh, I think, is going to help our team a great deal so they can spend more time with the client and implementing the, the plan. And it's also going to create stickier, more profitable relationships. So if you're, if you're an advisor who built a book in the 90s or even 2000, early 2000s and you have a thousand clients, you just you can't spend uh, the same amount of time with every single client. So you're going to have to take advantage of other units within the bank, work with other units and leverage those resources to make sure that every client gets uh, the experience they deserve. And as well, you want to make sure you're spending your time and resources with the clients that will be that will benefit the most from the one-on-one time with the advisor. So leveraging things like our digital advisor, um, our investor service center, which is which is really our call center, and also taking advantage of uh, social media, digital marketing, uh, I think is going to be big going forward as well. We we were somewhat prepared for working remotely. We had some training. And when the pandemic hit in, in March of last year, that really got accelerated. So <laughs> I think our team now is not only very proficient at running a WebEx or a Zoom video, uh, but I also think they're very effective now in, in presenting to a client via Zoom and WebEx as well. And I, I think that trend will continue as well. So to your point, geography is not the issue it once was. Some clients still want to meet with an advisor in person when they're making big financial decisions. And, and to that end, I also think when a client walks into a branch now, I think that branch team is going to look different going forward as well. You know, it's not going to be staff to, to handle transactions. It's going to be staff to handle clients coming in, looking to make big financial decisions, whether that's a mortgage, a commercial loan, or some investment decision like retirement. They're going to want to make sure, and a bank is going to make sure, want to make sure you have the right people in the branch to create a really good at bat. You're going to have limited at bats when clients come in. 
and you want to make sure you have the right team in place with a skill set to really address what the client's looking for and, and also develop that relationship. But in, in general, I think it's, uh, it, it's going to be an approach by the advisor with the client that is more holistic, which is good for our business. They're going to have to spend more time with each client. There are only so, so many hours in every day. So they're really going to have to focus and, and leverage uh, other departments within the bank to make sure all of our clients get the great experience we're, we're looking to provide. Yeah. So, so Vance, one of the implications of what you said, there's two interesting things about what you said. One is that your the branch staffing will change. And I think that's very insightful, right? Because the branches are going to be doing different things for clients now than they used to do, right? Because all of that basic transactional stuff is happening online. Right. When people come into the branches, they're, they're, they're probably coming in for different reasons. Or when a face-to-face meeting is necessary, it's necessary for different reasons than it used to be in the past. So that's, that's interesting. But the other thing that you said, which I completely agree with, is that the, the branch-based advisors can't handle all comers anymore, and they have to be selective with who they're working with relative to the complexity of the asset situation of the client which by implication means segmentation, book segmentation, right? And so I'm assuming that you're going through the same type of book optimization and book segmentation exercises that other institutions are and figuring out where clients that have less of a need are going to be serviced and and, and what your advisors are actually going to be focusing on, right? Is that That's part of what you're going through, I assume. Yeah, absolutely. And also looking at the client and, and how the client prefers to, to be engaged. So yeah. many clients, even even with a high net worth, prefer to be engaged through a digital experience. So we, we really have to be in tune with our clients and, and know how they want to be engaged. And that, that requires some effort. And for those clients who, who want to engage digitally, we need to make sure we have we're competitive with our with our mobile app to, to your point transactions are all done on your phone, right? For the most part. And we also want to make sure that when they want that, that in-person consultation or in-person advice, that we have a process in place where we're going to put them in front of the right person at the right time to make sure they get the advice they need. So even, even if they prefer to be engaged through primarily through a digital experience, they're still going to want to meet with somebody in person at some point is what our data shows. Sure. Uh, so again, we want to make sure we have the process in place to to meet their need and engage at the right times. Yeah, yeah, and it'll it'll uh, obviously it, it's evolving into a very hybrid approach, like like you implied. Right. So, Jane, uh, uh, Jane Allen, I'd like to get your feedback on this too. But let me just make a, a, a an observation. It may be that uh, someday branches, some of the branches in your footprint, while they're not covered by a live advisor, there is a little conference room that's a virtual meeting room, right? And if somebody wants to meet with an advisor, the LBE or the concierge in the branch branch brings them into that meeting room and the advisor pops up on screen and they have a meeting, right? There's probably much less of a need to have a physical space where a live advisor sits in every branch and I can see a day where an advisor maybe has a core branch and services a lot of the other branches virtually by just having a virtual meeting room. And if you think about the real estate necessary in, in branches, and that's being reduced anyway, this is potentially part of the solution to the problem, right? So again, just kind of looking into a crystal ball and, 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 and trying to figure out how some of this can evolve. That could be an interesting concept. But Jane Ellen, let me hand it over to you uh, to get your thoughts on the same, on the same question. Can I just say ditto? <laughs> well, you can, but that's the easy way out. <laughs> so, I mean, Vance really kind of hit all of the, you know, same things that, I, that I'm thinking that, one, let's start with, with the branch network, right? That, yes, I think that the bankers within the network are going to be changing and transaction, you know, transaction volume is already down, will continue to drive down because we have taught our clients over the years of, you know, starting with telebanking and then ATMs and, you know, now internet banking, right? So we've, we've pushed our clients to use those tools. So when we look at the staff within the branches, making sure that those that are in there are, you know, fully educated and trained on what we can do for their clients, not just meaning the investment piece that we can, you know, 
help their clients with, but how we can help deepen that relationship for the overall institution. So I think that part of that, you know, education is, is incredibly important. As far as the advisor is concerned, I think we've seen a couple things go on, right, over the last few years. One is some programs, um, us included, have had second story advisors where advisors are making that move of, you know, cutting their book of business, looking at the segmentation, taking their larger clients, moving upstairs, and, and in many cases doing very, very well. They're not getting branch referrals. Why? Because they're focusing on their books of business. So we've already started to see that happen. You know, the other piece is with, you know, what happened last year and all of us, you know, what do we say, five or six years of technology happened within a month, right, with COVID and getting our folks out, you know, and working from home, right, something I didn't really think that I'd see for a very long time. And, but what we have found is that new clients, at least bank clients, right, who are referred from the branches still want to meet with somebody live. We're doing a lot of our existing client meetings over the phone, almost all of them actually over the phone phone or through Zoom, but new clients want to meet with somebody live. And, you know, is that because of, you know, the different different demographics and of, of the clients that are being referred by the branches? We don't know. I think time will tell us what, you know, which clients want to meet with somebody live versus are comfortable doing Zoom or Teams or Meets, whatever it may be, right? But I think that's important for us to really focus on in an industry is to find out what it is it what it is that our clients want. I don't necessarily see the bank advisor going away at all. I think that you know cu- customers will continue to come in the banks. The clients who do will still have that need. But as Van said, we need to you know really partner with our marketing departments and our other business lines and partners within the bank to make sure that we're you know having these conversations with not just the folks who are walking in the branch network, but the bank clients as a whole. And again, you know, at the end of the day, what value we can bring. So the business is going to change. Yes. I think the days of, of somebody being walked in, you know, like Vance, I was, I've been in the business for a long time, you know, the days of having 10 to 15 appointments a day, those days are gone. They've been gone for a very, very long time. So, you know, how do you as an advisor bring value to your client through planning, right, through insurance? And, and at the end of the day, that's going to become a commodity, right? We're all going to be offering planning. So what is it that you bring above and beyond that? What is it that your marketing department and the other portions of the institution can help bring to your existing client base to, again, help deepen our side of the relationship as well? So, again, Vance said most of it, but those were just a couple points that I wanted to add on. Yeah, no, well, and those are, those are some really good points. You said uh, two things that kind of sparked my interest, and, and one of them leads right into the, the question that I know Bob has that he wants to ask. But the first one is, you know, the implication that you both made that rep tiers are now more important than ever, right? There are a lot of programs that are, that now have wealth advisors, second story advisors, right? And have associate advisors on the other side of the branch advisor, right? So this whole tiering of the rep force, especially when you consider book segmentation and needing a place for every segment of clients to be serviced is taking on a real sense of urgency. And it, and it's, if done right, it adds to the profitability of the program. So I'll have a question for you guys on rep tiering in a few minutes. But Bob's next question is relevant to the other thing you said, Jadon, which is the importance of developing relationships within the institution, what I'll call cross-departmental relationships. Because as Bob's question relates to the penetration of of households in the bank. Um, One of the things that we know is that we as a channel have not been effective in developing the internal relationships with the other important departments in the institution, whether it be the more, you know, lending departments or business banking or whatever, because that's where the gold is. That's, that's where there's a huge opportunity if there's trust between departments and that business flow starts happening and that really hasn't been leveraged in many programs yet. So, so Bob, I think that that kind of leads right into your question about penetration, right? Well, it, it, exactly. And it's, 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 again, more of a strategic question. And let's also make the assumption that the better the penetration into a financial institution's overall household, the more valuable the program is to the bank. So the penetration of investment accounts into financial institution households have covered around 5% for as long as we've been in the business, almost as long as we've been tracking that 3% insurance average. So is it at that, so, so Jane, let's start with you. Is it at that level in your bank 
you know, I'm, I'm guessing maybe maybe you're over the average, but and if it is, you know, share what it, if you can and what can be done to make it even better, because it's obviously a sure. really important part. Yeah, um, and it's you know another million dollar question. So I can say that our bank has has changed a lot over the years, and we were at a point um, in our Connecticut footprint, so which is kind of the legacy footprint of Peoples. We were at about a 15% penetration of, of households, which was really, really great, right? But we grew with the bank over that period of time, and the investment program was very, very in the forefront, very much in the forefront of the um, of the retail bank network. So then, as we started acquiring, right, we a, a lot of the banks that we acquired didn't have investment programs, so it was really starting from square one. So if we look at our entire footprint. Our penetration numbers, you know, on average are where the, where the industry is. But we've learned a lot from both pieces, right? We've learned a lot from those areas where we had that, you know, 15% penetration. And we've learned a lot from those areas where we have 1% or 2% penetration. And one of the, I think one of the most important things that we've learned is time, right? So Scott, referencing back to the insurance specialist, right? There's an ROI on on your program as a whole and, you know, kind of starting anew and how much time it takes and the work and the effort to build those relationships and, and start seeing that return. So time is one and having the right people. Right. So we know that over time, you know, it's harder and harder for us to get bank advisors, good bank advisors who, you know, really look at the relationship within the institution, you know, and the other partners within the institution. That to me is, is sometimes a little bit of a different personality. Somebody who's willing to go through training and development and not just be, you know, on the forefront of, of talking to clients for sales. Right. It's a very unique and special person. So I think that it's been harder to find those people in the industry. And I always, whenever we hire advisors, if you blow it with the branches, you're not going to make it here, right? If you blow it with our business partners, you're not going to make it here. That is just as an important set of customers and clients as, as those that are sitting in your book. So, you know, as we continue to look to, ha- you know, how we're going to grow our business, right, it kind of goes in, in line with the previous question that we have to build the relationships within the institution that's on the private banking side, right? We, we already kind of naturally are on the retail side, but, you know, better relationships with commercial, better relationships with small business lending, right? And, and all our, our mortgage officers, right? Everybody across the board. And, you know, I, I think that we've got to kind of chip away with that slowly from a management standpoint and one step at a time and, and choose a group to partner with. I also feel that, at least in the programs that I'm aware of, that the high net worth side of the business tends to be a closer partner with commercial, right? And the, you know, affluent or mass affluent side is a closer partner with retail, and, you know, I'm not sure that that's a fair assumption anymore. That's where the line should be, right? We should all be helping all clients and working together. So as our investment business and wealth business has changed over the years, you know, I'm going to say the word silos, right? Those silos have started to come down. I think Vance is seeing it in his program. We're certainly seeing it in our program. You know, we're reaching off, reaching out across the aisle with each other, working better as teams to let our clients know on all sides of segmentation of what we can offer as a wealth firm. And I think that's going to be key to continuing to grow that penetration rate over time. It's funny that you mentioned teams because, again, just a day or two ago, we were on another conversation about the whole team approach to knocking down the silos. And that 15% number is really, really an incredible number. I live on Long Island and I've seen people's grow on Long Island through acquisitions. And I'm wondering if the team approach has helped move those numbers from the single digits closer to the 15 over the last few years. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll I'll say that the 15 is what it used to be, right? In, in, the Connecticut region. The other areas were still growing. So that's why I said our average right now is is probably right around the, the, the average of the industry of 5%. Yes, I will say those teams, the, the work that has been done in the last year to year and a half in, in our organization of bringing our teams together. I mean, I've been here for a very, very long time. I won't mention how many years, but a long time. And I, I've never seen the level of collaboration Yes, 31 years, Bob's showing me, yes. Um, <laughs> I've never seen the level of collaboration that I've seen between the two teams and within the division. So 
I just look at that that will continue and that we're only a year in, right, of doing this. And, and I just look at that continuing to really just, you know, to grow the business for everybody, right? So, you know, for, for instance, we're right now, as I said before, going back on the branch scorecard, typically it would be the broker dealer side, right? That's doing the branch training for the branches. We're leading the training, but we're working as an entire department and division. So we've got folks on the, on the high net worth side that are doing some of the training. We're doing it all through teams. It's pretty cool what we've got going on with incredible support from retail. But that would have never happened before, right? Our FAs would have been out doing the training. Now we've got more of us who are giving a consistent message across the board, which is going to help reduce any confusion from our referral network of where to get the client. We just want the client. Send it to any of us, and we're going to take care of them and get them to the right team. Oh, that certainly is. Hey, Bob, there's two things I have to say. (laughs) This is to our listeners who are listening to this via podcast and can't see the video that we're seeing. One is that Bob held up a piece of paper that said 31 years, right? The other is that Jane Ellen started at Peoples when she was four years old, just so you know. Correct. All right, go ahead, Bob. We, we, have, we have to have some fun as we're uh, as we're sitting here in our our Zoom locations all over the country. So, um, Vance, let me let me remind you what the question was. <laughs> basically, traditionally, the penetration has been about five percent, and I'm sure you have a lot to add with the integration and everything that's going on at First Horizon. So, tell us the story. Okay, so I'll start with uh, uh, full disclosure, 31 years as well. So Jane Ellen and I oh, wow. in business 31 years. Uh, That's without a handwritten sign. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> no signage needed. <laughs> I, I will say I'll echo everything Jane Ellen said and to maybe add on a little bit. Uh, I believe financial planning is the backbone to, to a great wealth program. And there, there really needs to be a commitment from the executives and to support a great financial planning program. And I think somebody mentioned earlier that even financial planning now is becoming somewhat commoditized. So I think it's not only important that you offer financial planning, but it's really important in how you deliver the plan advice and, and how you execute. I think that's really where you can differentiate yourself. So if you look at a good planning program, I think what it does, and and Jane Ellen mentioned this, it really breaks down silos within the organization and it brings everyone together. So as an organization, you bring everything to bear to a client that that you have. All the capabilities that a a bank has to offer, you really bring to bear. So I, I think that's commercial lending, it's deposits, it's private client, it's wealth, it's everything. And everyone's truly working together as a team. And I think in that way, you can truly move the needle when it comes to deposit penetration. Uh, I'm not, to be honest, we just went through conversion, so I'm not sure what our ratio is, but I suspect given everything I know so far about First Horizon Advisors and how we operate, it's better than average. But of course, we can always improve that number. I would say it's probably well above average because First Horizon, and also many folks will remember it as First Tennessee, was probably the first, one of the first banks to really embrace financial planning 20 Absolutely. years ago. I mean, with with um, with planners that were, I, I believe, paid planners that really were acting as the concierge of the relationship. So that culture has been ingrained at First Horizon for a long time. Yeah. And I, again, I uh, I was with uh, Chris Loniker, who's the director of our financial planning program all of last week. And, and we conducted meeting meetings. So I got a, a real appreciation for the program. And I, I think our real differentiator is is exactly what you just mentioned, the centralized planners who have a lot of experience as well, by the way. I think the planner with the least amount of experience might be 15 years, and the one with the most is 30-plus years. Uh, and they've literally seen everything. And they're also, coincidentally, we, we talked about technology and, and using Zoom and, and WebEx. I would say they're the most proficient and effective in the bank at using that technology, and they've gone through a lot of training. So they've been able to, when I say effective, they've been able to close some very, very large deals via Zoom or WebEx, as opposed to, to being there in person. So you can you can certainly not only be proficient, you know, make sure you're, you're conducting a video where there's not an unmade, unmade bed in the background or, you know, the camera's staring up at a spinning ceiling fan or something like that. So you can be very proficient, but at the same time, you can be very effective as well. And I, I think that group is really leading the bank in, in showing everyone, including our advisors, that you can be very effective using that technology. 
So just as a follow-up question to one of the things you said with, you know, Chris uh, heading up the financial planning group, my opinion, you tell me if you agree, that overwhelmingly the most important part of the financial planning process is the discovery part, right? Which yeah. happens at the very beginning. And if you do a good job at discovery, you're golden, right? So yeah. have you guys, and, and Chris Sloniker, have you guys done anything to standardize certain parts of the discovery process to make sure that there are certain elements of that process that happen every time? Because I asked that question because so many programs leave the discovery process up to chance and up to each advisor. And in my mind, that's a huge mistake. So I'm just curious about that question, Vance. Yeah, so great question. And, and I think the answer is, again, going back to the, the centralized planner, CFP, all CFPs with a lot of experience who have seen everything. And, and they've even developed certain specialties. We, we have people on our team who, who specialize in estate planning. Maybe somebody, I think somebody recently got their divorce certification. So there's a lot of specialty even within the group of planners. But it, it's really around them having the time necessary to really build gather all the data you need and build a robust holistic plan. It's going to take on average five to seven hours to build a really good plan. And that's what they do. They're not incented on implementation of the plan. So I think that also creates an independent and unbiased advice approach or advice process. And they are the the quarterback of the advice. So we want wealth relationships. And we think once once a planning client is introduced to our wealth advisor, it's going to be a really easy process because they're going to have a list of recommendations that, again, was put together by the planner, not the advisor. And the advisor will take that and, and implement those recommendations with the client and create that great execution that the client might be looking for. But I think it's really important to keep the advice process independent and unbiased. And that's one thing we've worked hard on is educating our commercial lenders and private client team that, hey, this this is different. Uh, it's not being led by an advisor who's, you know, quote unquote saying, I'm going to offer you this complimentary plan. And as soon as you say that to a client, you know, it's in the back of a client's mind is, well, there's going to be a hook at the end. You're going to, you're going to ask me to buy something at the end of this. So I think having that independent unbiased process is a real differentiator and it's something we really spend some time with our our bankers on and make sure they understand how we're different than than everyone else in the delivery of, of financial planning. Yeah. And do you have um, uh, minimums to work with an internal planner, um, you know, investable assets or, you know, whatever it may be? Yeah, typically we look for $1 million in investable assets and 300000 in household income. But there can certainly be exceptions to that. We are, are very flexible and allow for that. But that's ideally what we look for. And then under those levels, are your advisors using kind of, you know, modular based planning? Yeah, I would say it's more investment type plans. Yeah. And and all of our advisors have access to e-money and and at the the basic uh, access level, they can put together an investment plan. So for those clients who may want a plan and maybe it's to your point modular, maybe they want a retirement plan only, retirement income plan only something of that nature, we can certainly, we can certainly deliver that, fulfill on that as well. Great. Thanks. Well, thank you both for that conversation. And um, I think we have one more question. And the title of this podcast series is actually Trend Watch, as everyone knows. And one of the trends that we're seeing is these tiered sales positions. So I think Scott's going to take it home with one more question all about tiered sales positions. Yeah. uh, Thanks, Bob. Yeah, so so that that's the question. So, you know, clearly one of the trends that we've been seeing over the last several years is a tiering of the sales force. So we see associate advisors, we're seeing a real focus on remote advisors in a lot of programs now. Then we have branch-based advisors and 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 then second story or wealth advisors. Right? So it it creates not only a a, a nicely tiered system that I believe, if done right, enhances profitability. But the other thing it does, and, and this is an internal benefit, <clears throat> is, is it creates a very nice career path for you to promote internally and move the appropriate people through, right? And it's, a, it's, it's, it's a natural incentive. So I, I just want to get you know, both, of, both of your thoughts on that specifically. So, so are, are you seeing that and is, is it beneficial already? Are you seeing the results of it? And 
What do you see as the evolution of this this tiered sales force and the the career path that it creates internally? Jane Ellen, you want to kick us off? Sure, I'll kick us off on that. So, I think in order, at least in my experience, in order for for you know a tiered program to be successful, you have to start right with the client. So let's start there. So how do you get there? How do you get to your tiers? So traditionally, we've had financial advisors. If they're high producers, they have a sales assistant and, you know, they just keep chugging along, right? We actually changed our program a few years back in, in, you know, first of all, recognizing that recruiting was becoming more and more difficult and, you know, wanted to create a, you know, homegrown investment advisor program starting with, uh, in, in some cases, starting with folks who were doing internships with us, you know, during their rising senior year of college and bringing folks in and having them work with our, um, our best of the best financial advisors during, you know, an 18 to 24 month time period of, of, you know, learning about the business, getting licensed, right, all the good stuff that goes in. And having the advisors be their coaches, and, and part of that program is also spending time with different advisors, right, so that you can kind of create what your own value is going to be for your clients and, and your own techniques. And then, you know, at the end of that time period, one of two things can happen. You're either a really strong team that are working really well together and revenues have increased and clients are happy, or the, the financial consultant then becomes the next person on the bench. So that's how we've built our program, and it's gone kind of two different ways. The other piece is, you know, our bank advisors are really good. Our average tenure is is about 20 years here at at our institution. We want to keep these folks. They're, They're very, very good at what they do. They have very strong client relationships. And normally, folks would either go to a wirehouse or go independent, right? They're going to leave and, and to the next step. We want to offer that to our advisors here as opposed to them leaving. So if you take a combination of the financial consultant program where you've got them working together as a team, introducing clients to the more, you know, the financial consultant who, or the junior advisor, then it kind of gives a natural break off for an advisor to go second story. Right. They've done this kind of good night, right, program with their clients. One of the keys, in my view, to an advisor going second story, because we have not done that as a force march. We, you know, it's a voluntary program, but in order for it to make sense, they have to have their fee base at a certain number in order to be dependent on, you know, to not be dependent on those referrals coming from the branches. So it's really helped us to evolve our business over time to be more fee-based oriented for our more senior advisors who have been in the business for a very long time, who started more as transactional advisors. So it's really, it's really kind of been three or fourfold of having folks to, to fill the seats, moving the advisors up to second story, taking care of our clients, and really having success in building that, those numbers you know, on both sides. Yeah, it's, it sounds like you have a, a good, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll use a, uh, maybe not an appropriate term, but a conveyor belt, so to speak, right? In, in the best sense of the word, to really create a robust value proposition for the client. I mean, it, a lot of what you just said is client focused as it, as it should be, yeah. right? If the advisors do a good yeah. job with the client, then they, then they move up. So, so, uh, so good for you. Vance, how does that compare to what you've experienced? Yeah, very, very similar. So, so again, just want to echo a lot of what Jane Ellen said. You can uh, say ditto, team, just like she said to you. you ditto. Know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think teams are a great way to delegate, you know, focus certain team members on specific clients and, and specific strategies. Also think it's great for new advisors. If you bring in a, an FA, make them part of a team and you have a strategic team lead who's a senior advisor and very experienced uh, I think it's a great way for, for them to learn the business and, and begin to learn how to build a book and begin to build a book. And options like book advisors, wealth advisors, you know, who may focus more on commercial lending, private client referrals, uh, I think is uh, key to long-term advisor retention. Uh, I think you, you have to provide that, that option like, like Jane Ellen and her bank uh, and their program. Ours are, are optional, so an advisor at any point in their career can opt in. We're not going to force it. So if you're an advisor who's built a book and you have, let's say, 50% or more of your book is recurring revenue, and and you're kind of tired of the, you know, hopping branch to branch, <laughs> and you want to be a book advisor, 
we have that program and that option so that we can we can retain that advisor and keep them happy. And they kind of have the the balance in work, work personal life they may be looking for. So as an advisor matures in our business, I, I think it's great to provide options and, and to allow him or her to, to transition to a different model. And uh, again, I, I would ditto a lot of what Jane Allen said. What are your opinions of this? So as you see your program fully matured, what percentage of your advisors do you think, when you compare it to all the other tiers, what percentage will be book-based advisors ultimately? That's a great question. You know, if I look at our, our legacy IFS team and even our legacy IWA portfolio managers, they're more on the younger side, <laughs> young compared to me, I'm 55. So I think uh, thinking about that group, it may be a while before they opt uh, for the, the second story or the, the book advisor option. But I can see a fair number, 50% or more, maybe at some point in their career opting for that. Again, it's it's becoming more more challenging. There's a lot more involved today for an advisor to to be a branch based advisor for all the reasons we we discussed. And and I can definitely see some advisors maybe wanting to get out of that branch grind, if you will, or hopping branch to branch and trying to satisfy not only clients but but bankers as well, and and maybe wanting to work with their their book of clients they've built over the years. Yeah. Yeah, so so you, you didn't you didn't venture to guess at a percentage. So Jane, Ellen, well, oh, do, do you? <laughs> I don't know if my answer is going to be uh, more more definitive here, but I, I think that a program should should aim that every advisor at some point in their career would become a second story advisor. So regardless of where they start with us, that's the goal of having them finish there because we want them to be with us for their entire career. If I look at our program now, we don't have a lot of second stories because, again, it's not a forced march. And, you know, for those who are, it works very, very well for them and is, you know, profitable and lucrative and the customers love it. But, you know, I could see right now probably about 25% of our sales force could easily go second story right now. But that's hard now that referrals are starting to kick back in, right? Because their mind is is saying, "Hey, I can get these referrals." I think that the balance, as as um, Vance said, you know, the work life balance is is important, and I think the last year is going to put more focus on that, and people wanting to maybe take that voluntary step to to go second story. So, you know, I think, like I said, a hundred of hundred percent of advisors should that should be their goal is that they're you know, have enough AUM and fee-based and, and, you know, aren't able to balance everything, you know, from, from home to referrals to their existing book of business. They're not able to do that anymore. And it for, and, and then they're kind of forcing themselves to go second story. But yeah, I think programs would be 25 to 50% if you were going to hold me to a number, you know, looking over the next five years or so. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know what? I love your answer because if, if, uh, if your attitude is we want to get a hundred percent of our advisors to be wealth advisors, second story advisors at some point, then basically what you're saying is we want to put the groundwork in place to make sure all of our advisors are rock stars, right? Now, the reality yeah. is they're not going to all make it. So going back to the conveyor right. belt analogy, you get a lot of people at the front end of the conveyor belt that fall off before they get to the, the back end of the conveyor mm-hmm. belt. So at any point in time, you're going to have a percentage that are second story advisors. But the objective should absolutely be what you just said, Jane Allen. So I, so I, I, I love that attitude. And you know, I'm guessing if we look five years down the road and we see the average program out there with 25% being book-based advisors that we have a, as a channel have done a really good job and come a long way. I think that's a, you know, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good goal for us to have. So, so good stuff. Well, listen, we've, uh, this has been a great conversation. So I believe it's a wrap. I don't, uh, I don't have any additional questions, Bob. I'd like to hand it back over to you for a, a final comments. Well, thanks so much, Scott, and thanks uh, to everyone on the panel as well. A real big thanks and a shout out to our sponsor, Ameriprise. Also, thanks again to the BISA and a shout out to Jeff Partney and Jason Myers for their help in organizing and producing this BISA Industry Trend Watch series. Again, Janet Capaletti for producing our bank channel research. Thank you. Thanks again, Jane Ellen and Vance, who I didn't know before this that were each in the business 31 years. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, thanks for sharing that. Another also reminder that the BISA annual conference is fast approaching on July 13th. Registration is open. We hope to see everyone there live and in person. And thank you for listening in on this podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to this and our other two series, Untangling FinTech and Industry Leadership and Success. So with that, bye-bye, buckaroos. (laughs) Bye-bye, and thank you both again. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of BISA Industry Trend Watch. And thanks to Ameriprise for their much appreciated support. We would also like to again thank Jane Allen Porter and Vance Richard for sharing their insights. Finally, be sure to subscribe to our two other podcast series, Industry Leadership and Success, focused on industry-leading performance and success stories, and Untangling FinTech, aimed at helping you keep up with the evolution of technology offerings in our industry. Goodbye until next month.